just walked back to show her which channel was uh, was my microphone. And I just said, so when I get up there, you can unmute it. And she looked at me and went about halfway through. So I'm not, that was really, really quick. So hopefully, uh, hope, hopefully it's not that bad that we uh, wish we didn't hear the first half. But uh, this morning is actually a tough text, though. So if you want to open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to finish it off. Uh, I just want to pray first as we as we begin, and then we'll we'll read it together. So let's let's bow. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. As we open it, as we read what you have said to us, and and some some difficult things in these verses, that we would allow the text to speak what is true. That any preconceived notions that we have about what it might say, that we would be able to put those aside and that we would just really evaluate what your word says to us. So God, give us wisdom in these moments. We love you. Amen. So last week when I, when I started, uh, we've been going through 1 Timothy for a couple of weeks now, just if you're visiting. Um, and as I started at verse 12 last week, initially I had gone... Uh, I had planned to go from 12 to 20 and finish off chapter 1. But when I got to verse 18, I realized that there was a couple of things here in these just these three verses that we're going to look at this morning that, that needed its own conversation. And so uh, I went to 17 last week with the intent that this morning that we would deal primarily with two very difficult questions. And they're not difficult in the sense of theologically. We're not going to try and explain the Trinity this morning. That's not the goal. We're not going to look at uh, just sorting out for once and all uh, predestination or something super heavy. it's, It's actually very simple. The problem are the implications. And the problem, I think, is in our own hearts with the reality that we all come to Scripture with our ideas, with our traditions, with our upbringings. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it really has helped us and shaped us and and given us a really good understanding and a good context. But sometimes those experiences and and those things that we have seen happen have not happened the way the Word of God has intended it. And so this morning as we go through this, I just want to challenge you to, to just let the text read. Just read it, and we're going to try and examine it without our own ideas, our own experiences, our own backgrounds, because I know that many of us have had some of these difficulties happen. And so we immediately put that in the context of what these verses are saying. And I'm just asking that we would try and read them for what they say before we input our own context into that. So if you're visiting here, uh, the first chapter of of 1 Timothy, uh, we've been talking about it with this context. Uh, Commentators often describe 1 and 2 Timothy as a mentoring manual or a way in which we can understand how we are called to disciple people. And this is what our church wants to move towards in the coming weeks. And and in just about two weeks, depending on how far we get uh, in chapter 2 next week, we're going to start unrolling a plan for how we intend to very intentionally disciple one another as a church. We believe this is what we're called to do. We believe this is uh, an act of obedience on our part to enter into the messy realities of each other's lives because not one of us have perfect lives. We all have difficulty and pain and hurt, and we all struggle with sin. 
but for us to grow in that, we believe to disciple one another and to come alongside one another in an authentic and vulnerable way will help with that. And so that's what this letter exists, is Paul writes this letter to Timothy to encourage him. Not just personally, but also he writes it to the church in Ephesus to say, Timothy has the authority to deal with these things, and he has the wisdom and the maturity to know how to deal with this. Would you submit to his leadership in this? And Paul goes on to explain that there's some very difficult things that are happening in this church in Ephesus. And, and Timothy, while we don't know his age, we know he's very young. He's a very young man. And he's being put into a very, very difficult situation. But Paul doesn't leave him there. He writes him this letter to encourage him to deal with what, ha- what needs to happen. So in the first few verses, we read about uh, some difficult teaching that has come in. We're not exactly sure what it is, but it's divisive. It doesn't focus on the gospel of Jesus. It focuses on myths and assumptions and, and various things that, that, are, that are just side issues. And they've taken the focus. And Paul tells Timothy, you've got to deal with these things. You've got to correct these things. You, you have to bring discipline into this situation so that the right thing can happen. But verse 5 of chapter 1, he says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. All discipleship is meant to be done in the spirit of love. The goal is that we love one another so much that we can bring each other on this relationship and mature in our understanding of who Christ is together, but sometimes we need to be corrected in that. And that's what this morning's text is going to be about discipline and correction, but how do we do that in the spirit of love? Because that's the purpose of what Paul is saying here. Then last week, he took a little bit of a side detour, and he talks about his own, his own faith journey, his, his amazement that God chose to use him, that in God's mercy, he reached out to Paul, and he chose to use him. Uh, I, I said it this way, is the gospel begins with God. It's not about us, but it's about him and what he's done. And, and then Paul uh, explains that nobody is outside of the gospel's reach. And he uses his own life as the example. If God can use someone like Paul, who was insolent, who was a persecutor, who was a blasphemer, who was against the very mission of the church, then certainly God can use anybody. And then lastly, he explains that our lives as Christians are meant to live to declare the power and the strength that the gospel has. So that not only can God save anybody, but God can use anybody to reach out to anybody else. And so we get this awesome privilege, an awesome honor of being part of what God is doing in this world. And so that brings us here to verse 18. And we're just going to read these three verses together here. So this is what God says to us. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hermiones and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may, not, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Just a, a short just small text that can be very easy to just move on past. But I think there's two very, very big things in that. What does this mean that they made shipwreck of their faith? And what does it mean that Paul's handed them over to Satan? I think those are two things that we need to address, that we need to understand, because 
they're serious and because I think they can bring in a lot of confusion about it. Now, how many of you have a, a translation? So look down at the page here where verse 18 is, begins with a new paragraph. Not very many. All right. Time to get the ESV, people. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Translations are fine. Uh, the ESV is a very literal translation, and it does a really good job of making these breaks a little bit more obvious than some other translations. And in this, uh, commentators often title this section as fight the good fight. There's a very, in verse 18 specifically in the Greek, there's all this, uh, this military usage of wording. It's very intense, very serious. Even the Greek verbs that are given in here, and I'm going to talk about one of them coming up in verse, uh, verse 19, but even they're just, they're just so intense. It's like Paul is preparing Timothy, you're about to go to war. You're about to go to battle. This is serious. Be prepared for what's going to happen. So when he says, this charge I entrust to you, well, what is this charge? That's the first question that we have to ask. What is this charge? Well, you go back, and in verse 3, he says, when I was in Macedonia, I charge you remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This charge is Timothy you have to come in and now you have to correct some teaching. You have to discipline some people within your midst who are making shipwreck of their faith and causing division and disunity within the body of Christ. This morning in uh, Proverbs, I was doing some reading, and there's a text that you might be familiar with, and it says that there's, there's a certain number of things that God hates, and one of them is a divisive attitude that stirs up dissension. Within the church of Christ, we are called to worship in unity and to lift Christ's name high and to live in mission together to proclaim Christ. How can we do that if we're divided? We'll never be effective if we're fighting internally. And so Paul says, Timothy, you've got to deal with this. This is the charge that I've given you. And, and he goes on and he says, in fact, uh, in Corinthians that some people gathered together and they prayed, they laid hands on him, and they said, this is the task to which you have been called. We are sending you out to do this. So Paul's reminding him here, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, I think that's just simply his way of saying, Timothy, you've been called to do this, not because we think you're worthy of doing it, but because God has chosen you for this task. God has picked you to deal with this, so you can know that God is with you in this journey. And I think that's, that's the first thing that I want to say to each one of us. Is the journey that you're facing right now, the difficulties that you're going through, the challenge that you're being presented with, is that God has called you to these things and that God is journeying through those things with you. He is there because he has called you to this place in this moment. And so no matter how difficult the situation is in front of you, I just want to, I just want to remind you that God is there with you. He has not abandoned you to do that on your own, but that he walks with you. And he says that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith 
and a good conscience. And the reason I read verse 5 this morning is because this is the same kind of phrasing, holding faith and a good conscience. Whenever you see something repeated like that, we've got to stop and take note because it's important. When he says holding faith and a good conscience, what he's talking about, the conscience in our own minds, in our own hearts that we hear, that we understand. God has given every single person a conscience. That conscience exists for purpose and meaning so that we would understand that when we do something wrong, when we hurt somebody, when we lie, when we do something that offends somebody that's wrong, we have a, a certain feeling that comes over us. We know it's wrong, and we know we need to deal with it. And Paul's telling Timothy, don't ignore that, because that is crucial. That is important. That's how God's created you. And if you ignore that, there's going to be implications to that. John Calvin um, once wrote it this way. He said, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. I thought that was a really good statement. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. In other words, all of this stuff comes when we ignore what we know to be right. When we ignore what we know to be right and we choose to do what's wrong, this is when bad things happen. So one commentator said it this way. Um, Paul's use of the terms good conscience um, and a sincere faith here, or holding faith, that he says, he's connected them together and they link religion and morality as inseparable. Most religious error is born of moral rebellion rather than intellectual denial. When we ignore that which we know to be right and we choose to act in a wrong way, what it does is it starts to make that conscience less obvious. And so when we lie for that, that first time where we tell just an outright lie, we feel guilt and we feel shame and we know it was wrong. But if we continue down that path and we ignore those bad feelings and we continue to lie and we continue to lie, all of a sudden we get to a place where it's pretty easy to lie. And we don't even feel guilty about it. We don't even feel bad about it. It just becomes something that we do. Paul's saying to him, you have to have a good conscience because by rejecting this, by rejecting this conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. By rejecting conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. That's a huge statement. And so it's one we want to spend a little bit of time on here. What does it mean? Well, this term reject, uh, the Greek uh, apotheo, uh, it, it means a violent and willful rejection. Again, it's a military term. It's, it's serious. So what it sounds like has happened here, and you can go into 2 Timothy to kind of get a little more context, is these two men, Hamanius and Alexander, had joined the church in Ephesus at some point. But what they were doing now was not anything good, but was dissent, stirring up dissension and trouble and focusing on things that weren't of Christ. And, and Paul's saying, this can't be, you've, you've got to correct it, you've got to deal with it. So what commentators think here is, is essentially... They have rejected the gospel for the sake of something else. This isn't actually unique to this situation here. and In fact, it isn't even unique to Scripture, and it's not 
it's not unique to one church or one group of people. You see this all over the place. In Acts chapter 8, we read about a man named Simon the sorcerer who sees what the apostles are doing, and, and he, it seems like at the beginning he recognizes that he has his need for Christ. And so he goes to the apostles and, and he confesses, and, and it seems like he joins into the church, but what we read about a little bit later is that Simon is upset that he seemingly can't do the miracles that the apostles can do, and he tries to pay them for the power to be able to do miracles. And Peter condemns him for it. And, and it's extremely harsh in that moment. And all we see is Simon drift off away. And yet, he was baptized, yet it seems like he made a profession of faith. Even the book of Hebrews is written to a group of people that, that heard Christ, that recognized their need of a new way, the new covenant and then the writer writes all of Hebrews because they're all kind of slowly falling back into their old way of doing things. And he's saying, no, you can't do this. You have to move forward in who Christ is. You have to keep the gospel central. And so this isn't a completely unique thing in Scripture. And when we read that someone has made shipwreck of their faith, there are others that have done that in Scripture too. So what does it mean? Does it mean that one can lose their salvation? Does it mean that somebody can, can destroy their own salvation? Like, how are we to interpret that? And whenever we come across a verse that sounds like, like it, to me, when I read it, it sounds like these people have lost their salvation. And when you come across something that sounds like that and it seems to go against what Scripture says, you need to take Scripture as a whole rather than take one verse and try and formulate your idea on it. So scripture as a whole seems very clear that salvation starts as a gift from God and it is from him and it cannot be taken away. Last week we looked at that with Paul saying, I was not worthy of salvation. It was granted to me as a gift. When you read in John chapter 10, Jesus uses this metaphor and he's kind of saying that, that all that the Father gives him are in his hand and he says not one can be snatched from in Ephesians, Paul talks about this idea of that when we come to faith, that we're given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance of what's to come. So when you, when you go through the theme, uh, especially of the New Testament, of what this means of salvation looks like, is nowhere does it sound like you can have salvation taken from you, or that you can have it and then lose it. And so that ought to be how we start with this. So when we read this and go, it sounds like he means lose their salvation. Let's Let's wrestle with this a little bit. So I came across this quote from Ray Van Nest. I thought this was really, really interesting. He says it this way. They, talking about Hymenaeus and, and Alexander, they claimed to be believers, but they had fallen away from the faith that they initially professed. Thereby they showed that they never were truly converted. This is why last week I said, for us to accept the gospel, we have to understand the gospel. We have to understand what it is and what it's about because if you think that you've come to faith because you think you understand but you add everything into it, then you've never made a profession of Jesus. you made a profession that you know you need saving. And that's different than making a profession of faith. So there's a, there's a story that Jesus gives in the New Testament. A couple of the Gospels represent it and, and, and we've sang a song into it. Don't build your house where? 
on the sandy land. Right? So you have the wise man and the foolish man, and Jesus contrasts these, and he says one builds his house in the sand and has no support and no foundation. What happens? Randy, what happens if you build a house on the sand? He gets to rebuild it. There you go. Right? It, does, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And the gospel is the same. If we come and we say, man, I know I need saving. I'll come to Christ, but, and we have a list of other ideas that are attached to it, that we don't understand the gospel. Uh, Tully and Chavidian wrote a book based on Ephesians, and he titles it this, and this is brilliant. He says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel. You don't add anything to Jesus. And we just sang it. Jesus paid it all. It's in him. And if we think we come to faith because we go, man, I, I, yeah, I need saving, but it's through Jesus and my good works. It's through Jesus and attending church. It's through Jesus and the sacraments. Whatever kind of history has taught us is those things are wrong and we haven't come to faith. We've come to what we think faith is. We have to understand the gospel. Only in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross can we come to salvation. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't add anything to it. And what you have here is you have two men who are so focused on myths and genealogies, and those are the only two specific things that Paul says, but commentators kind of assume that he's, he's using those as generic things, that they've added all these other things, and they're no longer focused on Christ, but they're focused on this genealogy, this specific teaching. And how guilty is our North American church of this sometimes where we lose sight of the gospel, and we go, well, actually, there's all these other things that are important. No, everything Everything filters through Jesus Christ. Everything is about him. So when it says they've made shipwreck of their faith, how I interpret this is simply this, is if you imagine the ship being the gospel, they've totally destroyed their understanding of what the gospel is because they haven't accepted what the gospel truly is. They're trying to build their house on the sand. They're trying to add other things to salvation and they have failed. Now there's good news and there's, there's hope in this. That while they've rejected their faith, and I'm going to skip most of verse 20, we'll get back to it, but it says this, that they may learn not to blaspheme as Paul's leaving the door open for hope that they can correct this. That while they have in the process of making their faith completely shipwrecked because they're focusing on the wrong things, there is hope and they can be brought back. They can understand the gospel correctly if they have a humble heart to get there. But verse 20, what does it mean when he says, Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan that they may not learn not to blaspheme. That is, a, that is a verse that we just don't like. That sounds exceedingly harsh. It sounds like Paul is, is literally saying they can go to hell. And that's not at all what he's saying. But it appears that way. This phrase also happens in 1 Corinthians 5. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that or those verses in just a minute because they really help us unpack the context of this. But D.A. Carson explains it in a, in a nice way. He says it this way. He explains that there's two realms. There's God's realm and there's Satan's realm. Is God's realm is the church. God has chosen to use the church, his bride, to 
bring many to faith in Jesus Christ. We have mission. We have goal. We have a community of people, us as the church, that are working for God's mission. And then he says there's the other aspect, which is the world, and that's Satan's. And so he says this. Those who do not believe forfeit any right to remain in the Christian community. However, Paul leaves the door open for them if they can be taught not to blaspheme. So when Paul hands them over to Satan, he's taking them out of the church and saying they can go be with the world because they have denied the very thing which makes them part of this covenant community. So the protection that exists within the church, and, and I don't mean that idea of protection that nothing bad will happen. But I mean that when we go through pain and hurt and suffering, we know that we have family that love us and that care for us and that will pray for us and that will journey alongside us in all of our troubles and despairs. What a beautiful, beautiful promise that is. That when you go through struggle, when you go through hurt, that you don't journey alone. God journeys with you, but also the family of God that you are now part of, they journey with you as well. Paul's saying you have to set them out of the church. Now, it sounds awful, and I just want to do a little bit of explanation in this. Because discipline is a difficult thing. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's a whole chapter there about discipline and how God chooses to discipline us and why he chooses to discipline us. And in verse 7, uh, the writer says it this way, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And then in verse 11, he says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, he's saying this is all discipline from God is meant to be corrective and restorative and bring you into a deeper relationship with him. That's the purpose. Parents, if you have children, you know exactly that truth. You discipline because you want to correct because you want to save your children from worse, more difficult decisions made later on. You want to teach them what's true and what's right. And God does this the same way. So discipline can take various forms. And, and sometimes when we think of that word discipline, we immediately think it's just this negative, awful, bad thing. But discipline's actually good, and it's actually necessary for all of us. If I was going to uh, let's say it this way. If I was going to go uh, mountain climbing, and so I said, Phil, you take me climbing, and he says, okay, Greg, have you ever climbed? I'd be like, no, no, how hard could it be? No problem. And then Phil takes me somewhere, and what happens to me? Phil goes up the mountain, and I can't, because I have not disciplined myself to be able to do those things. All of our life has areas of discipline. We can think that we can come up and play piano, but if we've not disciplined ourselves to understand music and to understand notes and to understand timing, all these things, we can't do it. Discipline is a part of our lives. If we didn't discipline ourselves, we would not have skills that we have because we've chosen to discipline ourselves. God is saying this, my discipline for you is actually better than yours because it's not just about music or about rock climbing. This is about me and this is about the gospel. This is about salvation. This is what's most important in all of your life. And so God disciplines us to that end. And then God calls the church to be his representative of that so that we would do that with each other. We are called to discipline one another. 
again, that, that immediately we have certain things in our mind and, and we go, well, that's, how is that fair? And how can somebody come alongside me and, and tell me what, what I should be doing? Because they don't know, they don't have any context, and we give all these reasons. But the simple reality is this, what I'm calling us to do is to hold the word of God high. And if we are not living under the authority of Scripture, then we are to be told and we are to be disciplined back into living under the authority of God's Word. We all need that from time to time. All of us. Not one of us is exempt from that. All discipline is meant to be restorative and corrective and to help us grow in our faith journey. And so when somebody comes alongside me and disciplines me to, more, to become more like Christ, that is the greatest gift I could have. However, it's awkward and painful at the same time because we don't like to be disciplined. 1 Corinthians 5 is the only other mention where Paul says a similar sentence of handing them over to Satan. And in this context, what we have is we have this man who's in the church, and it says that he has a sexual relationship with his, with his father's mother, his stepmother. And Paul's he's shocked about this uh, because what the church is doing is they're saying this, look how much grace and acceptance we have that we will allow this person to remain in fellowship with us. We are so gracious and loving. And Paul destroys them in the idea of saying, this: you completely are perverting God's grace and using it so that you can do whatever you want with no consequences and no, no correction. He says, that is wrong. You have to deal with that. And he uses the same kind of vernacular, the same way of handing them over to Satan so that he might come to be restored to the church. Guthrie explains it this way. This concluding clause, to be taught not to blaspheme, shows clearly that the purpose was remedial and not merely punitive. However stringent the process, the motive is mercy. And whenever ecclesiastical discipline has departed from this purpose of restoration, its harshness has proved a barrier to progress. But this is no reason for dispensing with church discipline, a failing which frequently categorizes our modern churches. Is What I would say is this, we either jump far too quickly to kicking someone out, or we just don't act. Now what I'll say is this, in, in the New Testament, you have two examples in the early church of people who were asked, or are or, or commanded that they need to be excommunicated from the church so that they would come realize the seriousness of their sin. Two times that happens. Every one of Paul's letters except Philippians is written to a church to correct false teaching. So there's a lot of conflict going on. There's a lot of difficulty, and there's a lot of things that need to be corrected, and only twice does Paul go this far as saying, this is this serious. So prayerfully, we ought to make sure that we are doing things correctly. Not one of us is without sin. Not one of us is perfect. It's not about pointing the finger at someone in judgment and saying, how dare you? You don't deserve to be part of this body any longer. Because the truth is, I don't deserve to be part of it either. What we're talking about is holding the word of God high. And if someone is willing to come under the authority of Scripture and of Christ and willing to confess their sin and say, yes, this is wrong, I need to change, then Paul's saying, accept them as a brother, as a sister, and work with them because that's what we're called to. But what he's saying is when people are unwilling, 
when they have turned from the gospel and they're causing division and they're unwilling to come under the authority of Christ, then the only thing that can be done is that you take them outside of the church so that they recognize the severity and the seriousness of it so that they can in humility come back so that they may learn not to blaspheme and they would come back into relationship with Christ and in humility ask forgiveness. The church is meant to be completely restorative of everybody. The problem is we, we can't control who is willing to submit their hearts to Christ and who's not. But we as a church are called to live in such a way that we hold the word of God high. And so I just want to say this to you. I, I know all of us have experiences in the past where maybe discipline, whether in the church context or whether in our home context, was done in a completely unreasonable way without any truth, without any grace, without any love. That is not what we're talking about. And that is not what we as the church want to be. We want to be a group of people that love each other and that help each other through every possible situation that comes. And if I have a brother or a sister in Christ that is struggling, no matter how difficult that struggle is, if they're willing to submit themselves to Christ, then we will always journey through that with them. And life will get messy then. And life will get awkward and uncomfortable. But when somebody who is part of a church community says, no, I no longer submit to Christ, I can do whatever I want, Paul's saying you cannot, Timothy specifically saying you cannot let that be part of it because it's going to ruin the church. You have to deal with it. And if the only way to deal with it is that they would be handed over to, the, to Satan, to the realm of the world, outside of the church, so that they see the severity of it, then if they see the severity of it and they learn not to blaspheme, you welcome them back in with open arms because it's all meant to be about love and restoration. And so if you're part of Banff Park Church, then I want you to know that we are not about choosing to discipline people for fun. We're not about looking at people who have issues and struggles and pointing them out so that we feel better about ourselves. We want to journey together towards Christ-likeness, and that will mean that sometimes discipline is necessary. Sometimes people will be caught in doing something wrong, and they need to be told that, and they need to be held accountable for that. Sometimes that'll be true for me. Sometimes that'll be true for someone else. And we need others to discipline us in that. But all of it that comes from this church is meant to be restorative, to bring you back into relationship with Christ and with one another. That's our goal. Because we all believe that all of us need God's mercy every day. Because not one of us is worthy without God. Paul's telling Timothy, it's about to get messy. But stand firm in the truth and do what's right. This is the same thing that we teach our kids, right? Is don't compromise on truth just because everyone wants you to. Don't give in to peer pressure. Don't just do the wrong thing because other people are doing it. I can't tell you the amount of times my mom said, Greg, if everyone else jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? Because I was very easily swayed by what my friends thought and did. The only way that we won't give in to everything the world gives us is if we study the Word of God together and we know here's what's right. Here's what's true. This is what discipleship is all about. This last week, I had a, a meeting with someone who's discipling me. And, uh, and we had some very difficult and, and hard conversation because a few things were said that, that 
that we needed to deal with and that were impacting our lives. And, and it's so easy for us when somebody tries to discipline us to just put our little wall up, right, and be defensive and be like, well, you don't know. Like, you're not, you weren't there. You don't understand. But if that person loves Christ and they love me and their goal is just to bring me more towards Christ, then my wall should go right down. Now, they may be right. They may be wrong. We have to wrestle through Scripture to determine some of those things. But to be discipled means that we're willing to be corrected by one another. That means that our arrogance goes down and our humility comes up and we submit ourselves to Christ and to his word and we do everything that we can to understand who Christ is so that we understand the gospel. That's what we're hoping to get while we disciple one another in our church. We're not trying to create perfect people. Perfect people don't exist. We want to create authentic people that love each other and that love Christ, that will journey together through hurt and pain and struggle, that will love each other enough to sometimes tell each other, if everyone else is going to jump off a cliff, are you going to jump too? Sometimes we need to be told that. Sometimes we need to be reminded what's true. But at the end of it, verse 5, this is the theme of chapter 1. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. My hope and my prayer is that if you are part of this church, that you know that you are loved and you are cared for. And that we will hold you so highly in prayer because we want nothing more than for you to grow in your relationship with Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words and, and, and just these small verses that we have. God, I'm reminded of the importance of understanding what the gospel is. That it's not Jesus plus our good works, but it's that Jesus alone can save us. So God, thank you for Jesus' willingness to go to the cross, to die in our place so that our sins would be forgiven. Would we as a church hold that truth high? And would we declare that truth to others that it's only in the name of Jesus Christ that we can be saved? So would we seek after Christ? Would we not make shipwreck of our faith by getting distracted and focusing on all kinds of other things and adding things to the gospel? And God, as we seek to be a community that disciples one another, would we do so in a way where we're not afraid of discipline, but that discipline is also all about restoration? God, we want each one of us here to grow in our relationship with you, that we would mature as followers of Jesus Christ. So God, if we need correction, would you bring people into our lives that are willing to do that? And would you give us the humility to be willing to hear that? God, if we need to be the one who is walking to somebody who is disciplining them, would you give us the grace and the love and the mercy to do it in a way where they know they're cared for and loved? And God, we pray above all that everyone would be willing to submit their lives to Christ so that we could be a community of faith that is united together in purpose and in mission. God, we want to declare that you alone are good, that you alone are worthy of our praise and our adoration. And so, God, this morning we want to submit. We want to say you 
and your word are how we will choose to live our life. God, would you give us the boldness, the courage, the wisdom? Would you give us everything that we need to become a people who are more mature in our faith and become more Christ-like every day? God, thank you for each one who calls this church home. What a privilege and what a blessing it is to journey through life with them. God, for those who are visiting this morning, may they go to their home churches in in these coming days and weeks, and would they feel the same love and concern and care for them. God, thank you that we can be part of this global body of Christ, that we can worship together. What a privilege. God, as we go from here and as we go uh, have snacks together and just spend some time in fellowship, would you just knit us together as, as a, just a, a church family that loves each other so intensely? God, thank you for each one who's here. Would you bless them? Would you be at work in their hearts and in their minds? God, we love you. Amen. If you've been visiting with us this morning, we it's our privilege to have you. And we just want to remind you there's snacks through here. There's no rush to run away. Uh, feel free to 